Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation, in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Nuclear power is an underutilized form of energy production. It's safe, reliable, and provides emissions-free electricity. It has incredible potential to help provide much-needed affordable electricity to people all over the world. Unfortunately, though, it's also deeply misunderstood. Scare tactics and myths are prevalent. Today, we're going to discuss nuclear power, including how it works, its current use, and why it's so important. We're also going to discuss myths and the challenges for nuclear. To explore these issues, I'm joined by Ed McGinnis, former Acting Assistant Secretary for the Office of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy, and currently CEO of Curio, a nuclear technology firm. And I'm joined by another leading expert on nuclear power, Jack Spencer, who's Senior Research Fellow, Energy and Environmental Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And Jack, uh, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. Um, So let's start with simply understanding how nuclear power works. And Ed, I'm going to start with you, that's okay. Um, Can you help lay out some basics regarding nuclear reactors from fission to to the types of reactors? Sure. Um, First of all, 20% of the electricity approximately in the United States comes from nuclear power that generates electricity through 92 nuclear units operating in the country right now. That also represents over 50% of the clean, non-carbon-emitting electricity generated in this country. And globally, approximately 10% of electricity is generated from nuclear power. So nuclear reactors in this country is a vital backbone of our resilient, affordable electricity. And it's frankly unique among any other energy source. One reason why it's unique is because it provides electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. A typical reactor in the United States will run for about 18 to 24 months without having to stop without having to be refueled and undergo certain maintenance. That is unparalleled. And a lot of people just don't realize how key it is within our energy mix. And without it, we would have a a major missing piece of our baseload power. Thanks. Jack, what are some other basic issues? Like what's a light water reactor, for example? So a light water reactor is a type of reactor technology. What is interesting about those, I think, is that they are the the basic technology we have right now, and it's that technology has been commercialized uh, and in, in in commercial application for a long time. Um, it also runs our submarines, the first light water reactors um, that were that were being used um, were uh, in, in submarines. The first one came online in 1955. Here's an interesting point about light water reactors, about nuclear power in general. The very first 
light water reactor that was used for a a purpose was for the submarine. That reactor was authorized in um, in 1950, I believe. Um, it came online in a nuclear submarine, powering that nuclear submarine in 1955. That's five years, Darren. Five years from authorization to actual deployment. That's before we had other ones. Right now, in the United States, we have a, a, a few under 100 operating in commercial space. And we have a similar number in military space used for uh, naval propulsion in our submarines and aircraft carriers. We, in early 2023... We'll get the first two nuclear reactors coming online that that we've got, had in a long time. Those uh, that process began 15 years ago. 15 years now it takes to uh, have a a, re- a commercial reactor authorized and brought online. Um, that is an important um, thing that we need to understand as a country that uh, exists. It it didn't used to be that way, and we need to fix it. Let me just ask, what is fission? Can, can are you kind of give me a... I thought this was a nuclear energy no, policy. No, no, this is a science. <laughs> the sweet science. <laughs> um, I'll give it a shot. And I don't know where you are on the scientific scale of things. But fission is um, you have a uranium-235 atom, a, uh, it, and it, it, it breaks apart. And in breaking apart, it releases um, heat. Um, and, and other materials, one of which is uh, part of which is uh, a neutron, which hits another um, uranium-235 atom, and it breaks apart. And that's where you get the chain reaction, this, this um, releasing of neutrons from the, uh, the, the, fi- the fi- fissioning of the uranium atoms that releases the heat. The heat then is used um, to heat up water and create steam. The steam goes through a steam generator, and that, my friend, is where you get the electricity. That's very good. And you use fission in a sentence, which is also (laughs) really good. Um, Jack, I'm going to follow up with you. And Ed kind of touched on some of this. What what are some of the benefits of nuclear power in terms of reliability and emissions? Well, I think that is amongst the greatest benefits of nuclear power. When you look at energy sources, it's often um, looked at in terms of – the percentage of time that a thing is actually generating electricity against what it optimally could. And when you look at um, nuclear power, that rate is extraordinarily high. In fact, it's the highest of anything. It's over 90%. The only time nuclear power plants stop operating is when you, um, generally speaking, is when you refuel them, which happens every 18 to 24 months, unlike um, wind and solar, for example. And I'm not here to bash anything. I'm just stating the facts, um, they, they are in the um, 20s and 30s percent of the time. Um, uh, natural gas and coal, they, uh, they're, they're very high, um, but not as high as nuclear. And so that's, that's part of the interesting piece of it. The other thing I'll just mention real quick is how um, versatile nuclear energy is. We often think of nuclear energy as being used for electricity production, which is we should because that's primarily what it's used for. But like energy itself, um, nuclear can be, can be applied, and I think in the future will be applied in uh, almost limitless sort of ways, whether it's for desalinization or processed heat for things like the fertilizer and chemical industries. I mean, it does all of this literally emitting nothing into the atmosphere, whether you care about – regardless of where one stands on CO2, most of us do care about things like particulate matter and other pollutants um, – 
nuclear energy CO2 free, um, but it's also free of everything else. And are there any other benefits we should know about? Absolutely. Oftentimes, when individuals do recognize and take the time to learn about nuclear energy, we don't talk about nuclear technologies much more broadly and how nuclear technologies are used uh, throughout our society, medical, industrial, space-based, and power um, on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, the only two interstellar human-made objects are Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. They're powered by plutonium-238 source, the magic of fission. And that is unique. There was no other source that could power something that long and continue that was launched in the 70s. Medical, we rely on many, many radioisotopes for life-saving, fighting cancer or imaging and others. And a lot of people don't realize also how precarious some of the supply chains are. Russia continues not only to have a dominant um, role in nuclear in attempting to, to weaponize it even more, the fact that we are today reliant on 20% of our nuclear fuel, enriched fuel, from Russia via several ships a year coming in. It's not just that. It's medical isotopes. It's industrial isotopes where they have gotten a lock while we've been asleep at the switch on these vital medical isotopes, industrial um, isotopes, and others. But the benefits are broad, and they're increasing. I run a company where we are focused on recycling our nation's used nuclear fuel. We're sitting on a treasure trove, a national resource in the form of the used nuclear fuel that has been run through a reactor once that that, um, period of time in a reactor, and not because of technical issues, because of policy issues going back to Carter for international issues. We chose to self-impose and tie our our hands behind our back while Russia, China, even our partners like France and the U.K. continue to recycle. When you recycle this material, first of all, you're recognizing that when you have fuel run through a reactor, you've only used about 4% of the energy value. There is so much energy left in this so-called nuclear waste in our country, it could power our country's needs for 100 years. And so we are going to be extracting and recycling. That's the key to make the nuclear fuel cycle, in my view, um, sustainable and unlock it um, to meet its full potential. We'll be recycling medical isotopes. We have advanced uh, nanobattery companies that are developing these cutting-edge batteries where you will not have to – it'll last 80 to 100 years. And so – and they're trying to scale it for watches, for phones, and it could be highly disruptive. So there are so many ways that we are using nuclear now and ways we haven't even thought of as long as we get the government to get out of the way and let the private sector innovate and do what it does best. That's great. So I saw a movie called the, was it the China Syndrome? Um, And so, Jack, I'm going to ask you this question. Has the U.S. had a nuclear accident that threatened public health? And and what are some things we should know about accidents elsewhere, like um, Fukushima? 
This is an interesting question. Um, let's focus in the, the United States has a stellar history in, in safety on nuclear energy. But instead of just the uh, that being the answer, I, w- I want to look at it a little bit differently. Um, let's look at it from a commercial standpoint because that's what we're talking about here. And um, from a commercial standpoint, the only accident that we've ever had um, is Three Mile Island. And though it has a place in sort of cultural American history that is outsized, um, it, that, that, that experience has gone a long way in defining our national um, sort of view on nuclear energy, at least for certain generations of folks. Um, the truth is... No public health or safety was ever threatened with that. No one was harmed or injured as a result of um, of radioactive release. There was no explosion. It was a partial meltdown. The, um, the technology actually worked as it should. It was a human error, um, a misreading of a gauge that led to that. Um, but there have been other instances um, where, they, where um, nuclear has – not not led to accidents, but where that you know there was an incident an incident um, in Ohio at Davis Bessey plant where there was some erosion that that could have um, led to you know not a not a Fukushima type thing, but you know there, so there have been incidents, um, but that's okay because what we see is that the technology is resilient. These machines are resilient that um, and they're getting better all the time, and we don't need to have a zero risk tolerance when it comes to it. That we need to manage the risk, we need to understand the risk, and we need to have policies that acknowledge that. But we need to understand it in the proper context, which is that we have um, hundreds of operational years with this technology, and it has gone extraordinarily well, despite some of these challenges, all of which have been overcome. So that's the that that's the way I would look at the American experience. The same is true um, Fukushima as as. Horrible an accident as that, as um, as sensational an accident. I'll use that word as that was. There was no, um, no one died or got sick from radiation exposure. Um, there are many who argue and who believe, and I think the evidence shows, though this is not my area of expertise, that much of the alleged radioactive. Um, Pollution around that area is not nearly as bad as what it is sometimes portrayed, and in fact, it's perfectly fine for folks to move back in. But there's a cultural, understandable cultural hesitancy to do so. Um, the one, the the one that I that is the outlier is Chernobyl, but we should not compare Chernobyl to anything that ever happened in the United States or um, Japan because a it was a different reactor technology. It, you mentioned light water reactor; it was not a light water reactor. One of the interesting things about light water reactors is the uh, the hotter they get, the less efficient they work. And um, this inverse relationship between heat and efficiency is one of the things that makes them naturally more safe. As they become too hot, they work less efficiently. So one of the things you want for your your reactor to operate as efficiently as possible is for the coolant to be as cold as possible because it allows for your fission to happen more efficiently. The Chernobyl reactor, which is a graphite-cooled reactor, is the exact opposite. The hotter it gets the more powerful she gets, Um, which is fine. You know, Soviets do what Soviets do. Um, 
But what made that accident different was that it wasn't trained operators who were running that reactor the day that that happened. It was a bunch of Soviet um, government agents who came in and did a, a test on the reactor to see how long – I forget exactly what the parameters of the tests were, but they weren't operating it the way it should be operated. And then when things started to go awry, they were like, there's nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> And they invited people to come in and put out the, this radioactive fire without telling them that there's a radioactive fire here. And so it's just a totally different situation. Um, so we need to understand these things in the proper context and not be ignorant in our approach to think all nuclear is the same because it's not. So I want to stay with the myths here, Ed. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Can, can a commercial nuclear plant explode like a nuclear weapon and, and – or? Can the fuel used in the commercial plants be made into a nuclear weapon? So I ran um, the International Nuclear Work for 11 years. Prior to that, I worked in nuclear nonproliferation, loose nukes, um, spent time in Russia securing the nuclear warhead sites, trying to prevent um, improvised nuclear devices and weapons getting in a black market. And um, categorically, no. Um, I can tell you that a nuclear reactor um, could never um, explode um, in the manner of a nuclear warhead is designed. You would not get kiloton effects um, from that. Um, could you divert material um, out of the fuel um, to fabricate a nuclear weapon? Um, Yes, a determined adversary, it would be very difficult. It would not be the way you would want to go. Um, but um, that's one reason why we have safeguards built in. The U.S., when I ran the international nuclear R&D and policy work, I can tell you that the U.S. was and still is seen as the absolute um, unparalleled safety-oriented um, and safety regulatory environment um, sector um, superior to any other. So when Russia and China are trying to sell nuclear reactors, uh, most of the countries and customers, they want a U.S. nuclear reactor but the, because they know many things. One is it's, it's going to be um, at the highest level of safety. So, But the bad news is we have lost um, a great deal of our domestic um, production capabilities. Ironically, we literally, um, you know, essentially gave birth to the nuclear industry in the 50s. And now China has copied much of what we have developed. And much of the world has our DNA in it. Yet we've allowed ourselves to atrophy to the point where we cannot even fabricate the large uh, forgings for a large nuclear reactor. And we are literally 100% dependent on foreign nuclear fuel suppliers. One is in the U.S. That's good, a European company. But the good news is that it's not too late. And we still have an edge in, in innovation. Um, we are leading now in new advanced nuclear re reactor designs that take safety and efficiency to a whole nother level. What I mean by that is, for example, some of the small modular reactor companies in the U.S., their designs are walk-away safe, meaning you could not and you will never have a core melt. Those nuclear reactors, some of them are designed where they don't even require water 
to cool down and they could have natural air convection. So, and we're leading in that area. We have an opportunity to leapfrog what has become a Russian and Chinese dominated um, global nuclear market. So um, the race is on um, to see if we can get back the implications to us losing um, a, a dominant position in nuclear globally um, goes so far beyond just electricity to the grid. It has tremendous national security implications. And so we have an opportunity, and um, one way to do it is once and for all get our nuclear sector back on a, a sustainable um, approach, not do something like try and throw away the perfectly good used nuclear fuel and you're probably never going to find a state that is willing to be the host for material that, if not recycled, is going to need a facility having it secure for 10,000 years with a standard of a million years. It's mind-boggling. If you recycle the material, you can reduce down to only about 4% of the original high-level radioactive material in at most have about a 300-year storage requirement for the high-level radioactive material. It's a no-brainer. That's why other countries do it. And I'm pleased to see that on both sides of the aisle, um, there appears to be a pivot to say, okay, Yucca Mountain, that didn't work. Um, it's politically unworkable. Um, it's time for us once and for all to take a circular economy approach and to recycle and then to unlock uh, the potential for the U.S. to get back in a leadership role with the con because the consequences are, I think, too, too great for us to do anything else but to get back in the leadership role in nuclear. So, Jack, I'm going to address one more myth, and I think we kind of addressed it, but it's kind of a practical concern for some people. Um, should people living close to nuclear power plants be concerned at all about radiation or other health risks, just real briefly. I'm not, and I live close to one. Um, look, a, a, I, I would I would look at it as I would look at it as any other large industrial facility. Um, though it's cleaner and better, I would look. I would rather live next to a, actually a nuclear power plant than most other large industrial facilities. People who live near nuclear power plants tend to be very supportive of nuclear power. They tend to be very supportive of nuclear power because they are uh, they are familiar with not just the people that work there, not just how the plants operate, um, but with they are comfortable with knowing that that plant um, is there and that the that it operates safely and how it's integrated into the community. Many nuclear power plants have populations around them, and if one were moving to a community where a nuclear power plant existed. It's not for me to say whether they should or should not be concerned. They should do their homework for sure. But part of that homework should be to talk to folks about um, living near them, go to local diners, that sort of thing. And I think what they'll find is that the populations who live around nuclear power plants um, understand the risk and that that risk is, 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 is minimal at most. Um, and if they have the opportunity, one of the, one of the great opportunities that I've had over the years being in the job that, I've, that I'm in is spending time with people at nuclear power plants who are operating them and running them. 
and I can tell you without question, um, they take safety extraordinarily seriously. Um, there's literally not a place in the world that I have felt a higher level of professionalism across the board than the people who work at all phases of the nuclear fuel cycle, including at nuclear power plants. So we've discussed the importance of nuclear power already to to a large extent. So, Ed, if nuclear power is so important, why is there so much resistance? That's a good question. Um, It's a multi-tiered answer, but you really do need to go back to the 70s and um, look what happened. Um, And where I think nuclear over time, whether it was accidents, whether it was policies by Carter and others – um, it, it really did start changing uh, the public perception. Uh, in my company, we have we like to talk about um, mid-century modern, and one reason is because during the fifties and sixties, nuclear, um, my friend the atom, um, it was embraced. It was embraced as an exciting part of the future. Um, World Expos and uh, Disney embraced it, and and for many good reasons. And it did over time um, get um, some very bad raps. Um, we were competitors too. We were competitors to the coal industry. Some states um, achieve or put in place moratoriums, not because they didn't on nuclear, not because they didn't support nuclear, because they saw it as a threat to their coal industry. Um, a lot has changed today, but I do believe, and you can see it in polls, that I think uh, we're coming around and there's an increasing um, positive um, view of nuclear. Some of the issues have been self-inflicted the way we our industry um, has handled things. But the bottom line is I retired from government after 30 years working in nuclear, and I did that to join a very exciting nuclear startup company, a technology innovator. I have never seen in my career more startup innovation nuclear technology companies than today. It's a very exciting time. And these are wholly new generational um, step grade improvements in the technologies like the walkaway safe advanced reactors, um, small modular um, reactors, um, micro-reactors, advanced large, and then all of the different ways that how many people still realize that, you know, so many isotopes literally are saving people's lives. Um, McDonald's, I was told by an executive that every French fry, every French fry served is irradiated for food safety. So, um yeah, we have had a bad rap um, over the years, but I think some self-inflicted. But I think we're coming out of uh, the winter from that. And like I said, it's a very exciting time to be in the nuclear space, not just nuclear energy, but the nuclear technology space. So, Ed, you mentioned small reactors and large reactors. My understanding is that small reactors are kind of the focus now as opposed to large-scale reactors. Um so what's your take on this development? Why the focus on the smaller reactors? Well, I think really the issue is versatility um, and to be able to size as, as needed. Um, we have become an industry in the past where it was large reactors, not agile, um, large gigawatt reactors and larger. And it served its purpose, but 
we have an ever-changing grid um, that is, um, you know, it demands greater distribution and flexibility. When you have a small modular reactor, you can uh, literally, some of these are 70, 80 um, gigawatts of electric instead of 1,000 megawatts electric. Sorry. And what happens is if you have a modular reactor at 70, let's say, um, or 80 megawatts, um, you can decide whether you want one module, two modules, or you can scale up to a large reactor with the small modular reactors. So a small is not necessarily a small. Small can be. But the point is you're giving you're giving um, size optionality, and also it's good for economics because one of the biggest problems for these large nuclear reactors is the upfront cost that you have to put capital on the line and at risk. Um, and every day you're, you're not generating electricity. That money is sitting there not only idle, you're, you're hemorrhaging money. And with the, the, the challenges with timeline for construction – it's made it extremely difficult, and one reason why you, you've not seen hardly any reactors built um, come online in the past 30 years is because now we're seeing that it could take four, five, six, seven, eight years just for construction, for licensing construction. And if it's an $8 billion plant, think about all, and then you have to spend and commit most of that up front to get all the materials. It is a real challenge. With small modular reactors, one bite at a time at the Apple. You don't have to commit as much capital. If you want to have a facility that has um, bays for, let's say, eight of the small modular reactors, but the market that you have now only supports about four, then you don't have to commit yet the capital to build those other modules. And you can wait until the market catches up. It's not unlike the nuclear recycling facility in my company, Curio, with, um, with this new cycle process where it's modular. We're, we're going to have modular systems, and we can scale up as we want. And that is the future, um, having a versatile, um, different-sized units. There will still be a market for large reactors, too. So I believe there's room for small and large reactors, medium, and some of these thoughtful designs can be scaled to be small or large. So, Ed, real quick follow-up. Is there anything new coming online? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, the Department of Energy invested in two. One is a company called TerraPower that's owned by Bill Gates. And um, that is a sodium cool fast reactor with a molten salt heat sink, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure um, everybody understands that. But the bottom line is it's – has the potential of being far more efficient, um, greater safety features, and you can size it differently. Um, it'll consume more efficiently the material. You have another design called X-Energy with ultra-robust, safe um, fuels called trisofuels. You have new scale, very exciting, small modular reactor. It is actually still using the type of fuel that our current reactors use. And they may well be the first one to have their reactor built in Idaho. Um, I'm proud to have been part of supporting that. So there's some exciting ones. DOD just selected a portable micro-reactor project called Pele. BWXT was um, um, 
picked for that, that could be a game changer, not only for military applications, but also for civilian, because these could be robust, small, um, dedicated um, electricity power sources that you will have, even if it's off-grid. So we're we're witnessing, I think, a dramatic um, um, change in the the types of technologies that are going to be available for the coming generation. And I think with that, it's going to cause a paradigm shift in a positive way. Jack, you've written about some new nuclear projects outside the U.S. Can you briefly explain some of these projects and anything that the U.S. can learn from them? Well, I mean, I just wrote a piece on um, – it's not a project yet. It's early stages, but sort of how uh, small modular nuclear is maybe taking hold in the U.K. Um, we see it happening in Eastern Europe perhaps. Um, most of these, though, are still early days, and we'll we'll see how successful they are. I think they will be. I hope they will be, um, but we'll we'll see. Um, in terms of lessons learned, you know that's an interesting question. I would argue that in many regards, the problems we have with nuclear power in the United States today are a function of policy, and the um, the, the these are not just sort of high level policy mistakes that have been been made in the past, but rather are functions of the underlying statutes that really provide the foundation for U.S. nuclear power. And absent structural changes to those foundational um, at, uh, the, that foundational legislation, we're going to have a hard time overcoming, um, you know, having a sustainable, um, robust, independent nuclear industry. In much of the rest of the world, their model generally follows roughly the U.S. model. That is, to cut to the chase, the government has a whole lot of role to, to, in, in the industry. And um, whether it's in the U.K. or the U.S. or Korea or wherever, um, that government industry relationship, and I would even argue um, at the beginning made sense. There were reasons for it. And we can talk about that if, if, if you're interested. But it I would argue, though, at this point, as the technology has matured, it has prevented the technology and the industry from evolving in ways that um, that the market that that the market would have pushed it had the government pulled back. And so, you ask me, is there things we can learn from other countries? I'm not big into learning from other countries. I'm big into doing it the American way. I want American nuclear power because an American nuclear industry that is driven by American innovation, um, built on American principles, is how America wins, uh, builds the most competitive industry in the world. If we try to out France, France, well, we can't do that, nor should we want to. Um, we should do it. Uh, we should do American nuclear power that is innovative and and gritty. And 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 pushes uh, boundaries forward. That's what we do, but we can't do it the way we're doing it now. We need to reform those things. That's what I would argue. So he had to add. Oh. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with Jack. Um, bottom line, again, after running our international nuclear work and competing head to head, representing companies, U.S. companies with Russia, China, and France, and others, the one thing that they have never been able to to duplicate or copy from us is our innovative approaches. 
That's the, that's the key element. And that's how we can leapfrog back. But it is absolutely essential that Congress and, frankly, the administration, they key in on that. And they do whatever they can to support innovation coming out of the private sector. Me, government, 30 years, I can tell you that our strength in the federal government is not being an innovative entrepreneur. Maybe high science at the Department of Energy, but we have got to even take further steps to align our laws. Some of these laws were put in under administrations where they were either anti-nuclear or attempting to phase nuclear out. Even under Clinton, there was a point in time where the Office of Nuclear Energy had zero in its R&D budget, zero. We were on our way to phasing out. So we still have a legacy of legislation and regulations, some of which is not designed to support and empower innovation. And so in the one other um, ultimate, I think, um, reactor design that could be a game changer is one called the molten salt reactor design. We developed Oak Ridge National Lab, the U.S., in the 50s, this design. China got the designs. China has already built a molten salt reactor design near the Gobi Desert. They're in the process of starting it up. They have grand um, plans for exporting that design because it's got inherent safety and other issues. There's a big debate in the U.S. about thorium fuel cycles, but the bottom line is a molten salt reactor has a lot of advantages, and we need to support the industry. My company, we're developing a molten salt reactor and ultimately a thorium base where you really do have a renewable situation going on there. Um, but it's going back to what can be done in the regulatory space, in the legal space, to support the industry going at it. Not unlike Musk with SpaceX. That was a daunting challenge for him in the 2000s to, to bring his innovative, reusable rocket approach head-to-head against NASA and others that were so established. He, was, he underwent withering criticism, but at the end of the day, look at the tremendous positive effect that small little startup company has had on the entire global space industry. We need the same effect for the U.S. nuclear sector. We have reactors that are on average the oldest in the world. We have the oldest on average fleet in the world of reactors, still the largest fleet. We have got to unlock and allow the private sector to go at this because that's our secret weapon. So you guys have kind of definitely covered the challenges for nuclear, but I want to follow up, Jack. Just Are there any other challenges in building nuclear facilities that we have not covered that you can briefly address? Yeah, I mean, when you say building, let's just say challenges for, for new nuclear generally. Look, I think there are policy challenges. That's When I say policy challenge, challenges for new nuclear, I'm not saying for one or two plants. I'm saying challenges for a robust, diverse industry. There are lots of challenges there. Now, the thing that I think is the most important of these challenges, um, fixing this alone does not fix everything, but it pushes a, it puts us leaps ahead of where we are now, which is nuclear waste management. Um, 
so certainly I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth. So Ed, I don't know where you are on this. So you're, you know, I won't be offended if you say Spencer, you're out of your mind. I think one of the biggest mistakes that the U.S. government made was in 1982 with the Nuclear Waste Policy Act when the U.S. government said to industry, you no longer have to worry about managing your waste. We'll do it for you. That created a huge um, uh, 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 misalignment of incentives. And the ramifications we have today are profound and twofold. First, it takes away any incentive for anyone to do anything. The industry, and I don't blame them, don't need to worry about it because the federal government is responsible for it. The federal government has no incentive to do anything because it's not their skin in the game. It's not their money, and politicians and bureaucrats are risk-averse and have no incentive, therefore, to come up with a solution. Secondly, and most importantly, though, is that by breaking apart fuel waste production, that is the production of using nuclear energy for productive purposes and producing fuel and waste management, you then broke apart the front end of the fuel cycle to the fuel back end of the fuel cycle. And that then made it impossible to have a market-based nuclear industry that um, that properly aligns those elements of the nuclear industry. In order for us to be successful over the long term, that needs to be brought back together and we need to somehow introduce market forces into nuclear waste management. And I think ultimately, though not instantaneously, waste producers need to be in charge of nuclear waste management. So, so let me just ask, what, what are some of your solutions for addressing nuclear waste? Go ahead and build on. Yeah. And so this is what my company is all about. We have the investors, um, myself, um, bright young engineers, four national labs, from the Department of Energy, leaders in the world in their nuclear space, all have joined my company. Recently, the federal government, the Department of Energy, invested in our technology. Bottom line, this is what happens when you have a private sector go at it, which we haven't had for waste management precisely because of what Jack said, among other things. When a private sector goes at it, what have we done? We came up with a facility that is compact, size of a football field, as opposed to the typical recycling facility, reprocessing plants around the world in France and Russia. They're the sizes of small cities, in part because they've always been government-run, government-funded, no basic market principles of minimize overhead, maximize efficiency, product development. We are turning the whole thing on its head by taking a private sector approach, compact size of a football field. We're going to have the the largest production capacity in the world. It will be almost double the current production, 4,000 metric tons a year. What does that mean? That means that when we are recycling this material, we're going to repurpose um, the uranium for new nuclear fuel. It'll be enough from this one facility to provide 40% of our nation's nuclear fuel. When you think about 20% dependent on Russia now, and we have no American fuel production, that is a major, major um, energy security vulnerability, a geostrategic issue, among many other things. So we're going to have a compact, modular, scalable, largely autonomous system. And uh, we're talking to several states now that are, frankly, excited about this. We have off-take agreements from medical, space-based, industrial uh, companies who all want access to these isotopes, some of which, for a medical and an industrial, Russia's got a monopoly on it to this day. 
So we have major supply issues that we can resolve simply by doing something that's a no-brainer. Recycle our material, reduce dramatically the amount of high-level radioactive material, repurpose it for societal good, and let the private sector come in. The last point is how many people realize that when 1982, when it was decided the federal government was going to handle this, what is the result today? In 1998, we were, um, the Department of Energy was supposed to begin taking that material. And oh, by the way, we taxed the utilities. So they taxed the users, the ratepayers, to the tune of there's a nuclear waste fund that is almost $50 billion to this day. And that is sitting there in unused. And since the, the Department of Energy failed to pick up the material starting in 1998, the, they took us to court, the utilities. We're paying. The, Fed, the taxpayer not only paid in almost $50 billion, paying almost a billion dollars a year in court assess fines as compensatory damage for failing to pick up. This is what happens when you... You put the government in doing something that they should never have been put into. Let the private sector go at it. And again, that is, that's been our history in the U.S. When we get, when we're able to have private sector innovation, we leapfrog. And so we're in a position to do this now. And I'm, I'm actually optimistic both on the Republican and Democratic side, both in, in Congress and also seeing what's coming out of, frankly, um, on nuclear from uh, the Department of Energy, where they're starting to recognize that recycling is a no-brainer. And if we are going to have nuclear in the future, we've got to remove this ball and chain called um, the, the nuclear waste problem and start with saying, recognize that this is anything but waste. It's a treasure trove of national uh, valuable re materials. Can I add one footnote sure. to what, what Ed said? Because it's an important one. It goes to the re to what I was talking about earlier, that there's no incentive for anyone to do anything as long as this is in the government's uh, bailiwick. Ed just laid out the, the finances. That, uh, that billion dollars a year that gets paid uh, to the utilities because the federal government didn't fulfill its obligation, that doesn't come out of DOE budgets. It doesn't come out of um, budgets that make any any bureaucrat uh, feel any pain. It comes out of the judgment fund, which um, I don't even think th it's there's a- general a, treasury. Yeah. So it, it, the taxpayers, are they're getting hit twice now. So we really have to have some corrective action once and for all to have sensible- legislation and regulations. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in a key position as well. And Congress um, is absolutely the entity that needs to take the bull by the horns on this. And we're seeing that recognition happening mm -hmm. um, right now with, with on the House side and the Senate. There's some increasing champions um, on the idea of not only nuclear, but that we need a, a holistic um, sustainable circular economy approach, a, a nuclear sector that expects to be embraced by the U.S. Um, um, public based on using only 4% of its fuel and then attempting to throw it away and talk a state into taking it when it's at its highest level of radiotoxicity, requiring 10,000-year management. Who can even put their mind around that as opposed to recycling it and getting rid of the vast majority and only dealing with a much shorter time period. 
We have done it to ourselves, starting under Carter. Fortunately, Reagan reversed the policy on the prohibition of reprocessing. But so many regulations and laws have been put in place that have the effect of preventing companies like mine, although I believe we're going to succeed, to go at this issue um, for many of the reasons even Jack referenced. So, Jack, let me ask, given the challenges and importance in nuclear, should the U.S. be subsidizing nuclear? Oh, my favorite question. Should we subsidize nuclear energy? Um, I don't support subsidies for any, any energy source, but let me add a little bit more context to that as it pertains to nuclear. The federal government, state government, but let's focus on the federal government, creates so much cost and so much risk for, for, uh, for nuclear power that I am very sympathetic to the want of folks in the nuclear industry to have some sort of uh, skin in the game of the U.S. government before they commit their own capital. I don't blame them at all. I do think, though, um, so, so that is what I think. I think also for politicians who want to see nuclear go forward, the approach to do that is not to just further subsidize it. Even if that's what some people in industry, if that's their response, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying if it is, that's not the right approach. The better approach is to go after these underlying policy and structural problems that we've talked about and allow nuclear to compete. Now, that doesn't just mean um, fixing nuclear waste. It also means the NRC. The NRC needs reform. How we, how we look at radiation protection needs reform. All of these things need reform. Uh, while local communities should certainly have a role to play in, ha- in, in, in what goes on there, um, we have to have protection so that if I have property and I want to build a nuclear power plant and I can do it safety within the structures of the re- of the of what's regulatory require regulatorily required, I should be able to go do that. So, um, no, I'm not for subsidizing any energy source, including nuclear energy. I am for, however, fixing these structural problems so that nuclear has a chance, a fighting chance to be successful. And I don't blame any nuclear company for taking nuclear subsidies or even arguing for them, so long as they are forced to exist in this horrible business environment that the federal government has created. And I would say subsidies is a very broad term that I think has been uh, too broadly applied in this case because subsidies to me is um, just outright aid, um, just turning over um, funds to someone else. In my view, in the nuclear energy sector, where some of the vital test facilities, test reactors, others, are at the DOE federal government laboratories. There is no possible way companies, private companies, would be able to afford or justify building a $3 billion test stand just for one stage of their product development. So my point is let's talk about investment and partnering and return on investment. So, and we've been speaking to leaders on the House side too, some very fiscally conservative, rightly so. And when you present it as what is the return on investment, let's say for nuclear, if we exit nuclear, there was 104 reactors in the U.S. just a number of years ago when I was acting assistant secretary. We have 92 and it's dropping like a rock. 
And China is the fastest growing nuclear power in the world. Russia has a dominant lock. The implications so far beyond nuclear or electricity is geostrategic. What's the return on investment having a U.S. vibrant nuclear sector back? The return on investment, among other things, is not just electricity, domestic energy security in the U.S. It's geostrategic. It's even carbon-free. It's, it's climate. And so my view is there is an appropriate role for the federal government in the nuclear space to help partner with innovative companies that are trying to bring in new step change technologies that's going to ensure greater affordability for electricity, ensure reliability, um, and also ensure that the U.S. maintains its leadership position for national security and other reasons. So the subsidy issue, I think, in my view, it doesn't apply at least to the way we approach it, certainly in our company. But do we want to partner with the federal government? You betcha. Do we believe it is very important? Absolutely. And do we think it's a good use of taxpayer funds to have the Department of Energy, for example, partner with us thoughtfully in areas that they, they're strong in, like high science and R&D, with us? Yes. And I agree with that generally. I mean, I think the way I look at it is research and development in those areas that are broadly applicable, you know, th th those sorts of things. The other area that I think is really important are there are, there are any number of areas within nuclear space that have really important government uh, – that meet government demands. The, uh, Ed had mentioned the Pele project. I mean, I think that's a really good example of a government nuclear program – that is completely legitimate and very well could yield commercially interesting um, things. Another quick point that I think is that that I think is worth mentioning. I know we're trying to to close up here. Um, a lot of folks will look at nuclear energy and say that you know it doesn't make economic sense. There's um, there's where's the commercial demand? That's why you need the subsidies. There are two uh, data points that I think are interesting. Every time nuclear has even a, even a sniff of opportunity, private money goes to it. And there are two examples that I think show that. Um, in the 1970s into the 80s, there were uh, almost 100 reactors that had applied – or 100 uh, applications at the NRC to build new reactors that eventually went away because of all the problems that, that we've been talking about. So there was substantial private sector interest. So then um, in, in, in 1989, for what it's worth, the NRC did some um, reforms that attempted to make their regulatory process easier by allowing uh, companies to uh, – uh, instead of having a two-step licensing process to combine the construction and operation um, uh, license to uh, create a, a certified design sort of off the shelf and then to get an early site permit. And then it took a few years for that stuff to sort of percolate through the system. But by the mid-2000s, um, that you had this new interest in nuclear, and you had twenty nine company or twenty nine applications at the NRC. I think it was twenty nine, or applications to build twenty nine new reactors. And again, because we didn't fix this for whatever reason, those went away. The point is, we keep seeing this private money flow towards it every time there's a a, a sniff of a chance, and that's where we are now. So the question is, are we going to go down the same road we've been down before? 
and say, oh, we have a nuclear renaissance. Look at all these great things that are happening. And then not change, you know, you know, do the same things that we've done before and have it fizzle? Or are we going to take this opportunity to do it differently this time um, and maybe actually have a nuclear renaissance? So, Ed and Jack, as we wrap up, what are a few key takeaways that you think listeners should take with them? And let's just do this really quickly. Jack, your key takeaways? Nuclear power is a safe um, energy source that has all the potential in the world, not just to make our country better off, but the world better off. Um, it's a energy source with which we have a lot of experience, um, but there's also a lot over the horizon, not even over the horizon, in the in the present and future. Um, there are a lot of opportunities that bring even greater capability. But um, in order for us to get there, we can't continue doing things the same way. From a policy standpoint, we need to have um, reform that recognizes where we are as a country and where the nuclear industry is as an industry and, um, and, and create a new policy framework that allows that potential to actually um, emerge as we move forward. Ed, key takeaways? Yeah. After certainly, I think, most of our generation, 30 years at least, such as mine in my career, I have never seen a better moment to once and for all right the ship for the nuclear energy sector. Not only right it, but to deal with something that if we don't fix the back end, the so-called waste problem now, we are going to be bequeathing this mess to generations to come. And we have no right to do that because this was self, self-generated self as a problem. And we know how to fix it. We know how to do it. And the difference now is we have a bow wave of innovative companies and investors that believe that there is tremendous opportunity now. And you have, in my view, I would argue nuclear has the strongest base potential for bipartisan support of any energy sector. We're seeing it. So the combination of industry stepping up to the plate, bipartisan opportunity, in the existential threats that can be uniquely addressed by nuclear is key. So we have an opportunity and we have these exciting new technologies, advanced nuclear recycling, these advanced nano-diamond batteries, space-based power sources coming online, um, advanced reactors in a way we – these are not your grandparents' reactors. This is like comparing a Model T to a Tesla. It's an exciting time, and it's our opportunity, the once and for all, um, firmly established the, the future of nuclear now in the U.S. Ed and Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. And once again, I'm Darren Baxt, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and also our center's newsletter called The Charge. And be on the lookout for the next edition of the PowerCast coming out in January, right after the holidays. So thank you again.